the vast majority of it was going to pay for the insurgency. It was about impressing the people in Washington rather than the people on the streets of Baghdad. I think there's plenty of evidence that the military did it. And off I went with two suitcases and some bedsheets and a couple of pots and pans. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Peter Bateman and welcome to the very first episode of the Dyson House podcast, a place to discuss the past, present and future of our international world and how to break into the fields that will change it. We're brought to you by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. My guest for this episode is former ambassador to Myanmar, Christopher Lam. Christopher retired from a career in diplomacy spanning over 30 years. He now heads a number of advisory boards working with organisations like the Red Cross and the Australian Myanmar Institute and enjoys a post as an honorary associate professor at the University of Melbourne. We discuss the history of the people known as Rohingya and the realities of the current crisis from the perspective of someone who knows the region intimately. We get into the details that don't often make the mainstream news and cover one of the world's least known crises. So without further ado, please enjoy the real story of the Rohingya with Christopher Lamb. All right, welcome Professor Lamb to the Dyson House podcast. Well, it's very good of you, Peter, to invite me, and I'm very happy to be at the AIIA Victoria and to be here to speak for myself and for our Australian Myanmar Institute. Excellent. All right, well, we're going to be talking about persecuted people who, despite clear evidence of massive and prolonged suffering, are kind of rarely mentioned in at least the Australian media. So I'm talking, of course, about the Rohingyas of Myanmar. Uh, This is a topic that I'm personally invested in. I have family ties to what used to be known as Burma, and I know there are a few, if any Australians, more knowledgeable or passionate about the issue than yourself, Christopher. So just before we get into it, for those who don't know, who are the Rohingya people? The people who are known as Rohingya, a population living on the western coast of the Bay of Bengal in an area of geography stretching from what is now Bangladesh into what is now Myanmar. The people have been there in different forms for hundreds and hundreds of years. They predominantly Muslim. Uh, the, the word Rohingya doesn't really have a, a, a defining context in ethnicity or religion, but they are that population. The British call them Chittagonian Bengalis. Okay, and there's a little bit, confu- a little bit of confusion in the international community and indeed in Myanmar, about their citizenship status. Are you able to clarify any of that? The citizenship status to Myanmar, that is. Peter, it depends on how complicated you want the answer to be. Going back to the time when there were the Arakanese kingdoms, if you can take your mind back as far as that, Peter, in, I think it was 1784, the... Arakanese kingdoms were overwhelmed by the Bama, Burmese kingdoms, which at that time were in Amarapura and later in Mandalay. They were Buddhist kingdoms on the Arakan coast, and they had been bringing labor down from what is now Bangladesh, Bengali labor, to do the hard work in their agricultural fields and road building or those, uh, uh, the hard yakka work for the country, and they were coming down at that time. When the Burmese kings took over the Arakanese kingdoms, they continued to bring them down from the north. So there have been people just in those programs who've been in that countryside for two, three hundred years. When the time came for them to be absorbed after the British took over Burma in 1885, when they overthrew the king in Mandalay and took control of all of that territory, and they'd had control of parts of the Arakan before anyway, uh, they continued bringing people down. So there were waves of people who'd come and different attributions for them at different times. There were many who were perfectly entitled to be regarded as what we now know as citizens, and they didn't have that concept at that time. They, they had that automatically. So there are now several hundred thousand, maybe 300, 400,000 people who could be classified as Rohingya for ethnic or religious reasons, and they're citizens, and they're there. There are about a million or more 
who are not citizens, and there are reasons why that happened, and some of them are attributed to what the British did when they were in charge, and to what happened later, and then finally, and I think you know about this, what happened in 1982 when the government enacted a new citizenship law. And then what, what was that exactly in 1982? In 1982, General Ne Win, who at that time was the country's president, or no, he wasn't the president, he was the, he was the head of the Burma Socialist Program Party. I think he'd relinquished the presidency by then. He announced that there would be a new law, a citizenship law, and it was done, and it introduced categories of citizenship. Some say in order to deal with the issue of people who would otherwise be stateless, and it introduced a category of people who could be classified as associate citizens. They never did regulations under the law, and the associate citizenship definition was never used, but it's there. And to, or at least to the best of my knowledge, it was never used. And it was going to be some form of uh, citizenship movement or identity movement for people who weren't otherwise entitled to have it through birth. But the, the, the Rohingya, as you describe them, are not the only people in the country who suffer from this. Or who, There are people who are of Chinese ethnicity on the eastern side of the country. In the northern side, in the Kachin state and in parts of the Shan state, there are people who were Gurkhas who came with General Slim in 1944. There's a whole raft of people who these considerations could apply to, and the so-called Rohingya are not the only ones. Fair enough. So when was your first actual trip to, to Myanmar? Uh, I'll say one more thing before I leave them. Uh, about, of course, yeah. About this issue of citizenship and who people are. I said so-called Rohingya, and I did that because the, the term Rohingya was not well known or used until the 1990s. It's not a traditional term that the people used for themselves way back in history, and there are some who even now don't like to use it because they see it as uh, defining them in a way that is not necessary for the purpose of their own incorporation to the growth of the country. But it's very complicated. I think that you could say now that the word has gained a lot of currency in the last couple of years that it didn't have before, and I'm happy to see people use it, so long as it's not used in a pejorative or uh, negative definition sense. Okay, and, and just thanks for clarifying, clarifying that. And just going back to uh, your first trip to Myanmar, you, you were eventually appointed as ambassador. Did, did you Were you there beforehand as well? My first trip to the country was as a student tourist in 1965 when a tourist visa was limited to 24 hours. So I had 24 hours in what was then called Rangoon in, 19, in 1965. I went back in 1972, by which time I was working for the Department of Foreign Affairs, to the embassy as a young officer, and I was there for just over two years at that time, from 72 to 74. I came back to the embassy as ambassador in 1986 and was there until the end of uh, until September 89. And um, just uh, maybe you could talk also about the time when you were there just as part of the State Department and indeed when you were traveling there, but particularly when you were an ambassador, what was the situation like with the uh, Rohingya? Uh, it was an unknown term. Uh, nobody talked about it. It wasn't an issue that was on anyone's mind. And when I was there the first time from 72 to 74, I went up to that border several times because this was at the late stages of the war in Bangladesh that resulted in the liberation of the country of East Bengal from Pakistan and its, its development as Bangladesh. And the Rohingyas were, the, not the Rohingyas, the refugees were on the other side of the river. They'd come from what is now Bangladesh into Burma for safety. And they were welcomed there, and then they went back when the war was over. In, when I came back in '86, there was no issue about Rohingya, and that's only four years after the adoption of the citizenship law. It wasn't part of discussion. And yet in 82, it had been part of discussion, and I've seen things that were written 
in 82 about that law and about what might happen. And as I said before, they never did regulations, for example, about associate citizenship, to my knowledge, and the issue lapsed. Okay, so moving forward to uh, August 2017, what's the situation like in Myanmar now? And to your knowledge, what's, what's happening? There had been waves of repression against the people we now know as Rohingya at different times in the, in the country's history. And uh, there was a significant movement of people across the border into Bangladesh in the 1990s. Uh, many of them stayed, but uh, well, quite a few of them stayed, but many returned to their villages and their homes, and they went back, and then on and off there were waves of repression. A lot of this was generated by the people in the Rakhine state itself. They weren't necessarily seen as something that was generated by central government attention to the question. And the central government's problems are quite large because... It's not only the Rohingya who are a matter of concern for the central government. There are other, other forms of insurgency, if you can put it as, stri- as strongly as that, in the area, and they compete with each other for attention. In, uh, when I came in 1986, there was no real discussion about Rohingya, and, and, and through the time that I was there, there wasn't either. There was the issue of, in everybody's mind, was how do, how do we try to do something about the dire economic circumstances. We were looking at the Burmese way to socialism and its death throes, uh, hunger, disease, and uh, dislocation through the country. And the issue of Rohingya wasn't important to anybody at that time, nor, I think, was it important in the area. So the Rohingya aren't the only um, group of people who identify with Islam in the Myanmar, uh, Myanmar state. Is that, is that correct? That's right. There are people who came across from uh, what was British India at the time, or before that, which was Mughal India. Uh, the, the first settlements on the, uh, on the coast, the Arakan coast, that were established by Muslims were outposts of the Persian uh, Mughal Empire coming through India. There are three or four of those, and the people are still there. They are probably the, the closest you could go, ever identify to being... Uh, indigenous Muslims in the country, and they've been there for a very, very long time. But there are others who came later, and many of them were brought by the British. Uh, The British had this view of the Burmese as being lazy, and they won't work, and so they brought in people to replace the Burmese who wouldn't work. Actually, the answer is they wouldn't work for the British. They worked perfectly well, but they didn't like being under that form of control. So a lot of accountants, lawyers, civil administration people, and the like... Uh, were brought in from what is now West Pakistan, not from, I'm not talking about Bengalis at this stage, so there's different categories, or from India proper. And they're still there, and they live a perfectly normal life in the country. Uh, there's nothing particularly anti-Islamic about the way things function in the country. There are, of course, there are areas where people are discriminated against, and you find that here in Australia too. But there is not a, a, a there's not now and never has been a national policy of discrimination against them. Okay, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because the reason I, I brought that up was a lot of media has sort of reported that the the crisis with the Rohingya is is one of religion, is one of religious persecution. And is there any weight to that at all? You just said it's not not necessarily a policy of the government, but it seems these other Islamic groups are, are able to function in society there. Yeah, what, what what's your comment on that? It's not a government policy issue. In fact, one of the things that's happened uh, just recently, and and it might be in people's minds as they hear this, is that there were recently six Myanmar human rights organizations sent a letter to Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook 
accusing Facebook of facilitating hate speech. Uh, we're talking about a, a country which had basically no internet for the population until about 2013, when the price of a SIM card dropped from $3,000 to $1.50, and everybody went out onto it. There are now, in a country of 55 million people, there are now 40 million people on Facebook. And when you that staggering figure tells you that they're getting information from somewhere. Facebook began using uh, putting Burmese script as a, as a script available to its reading public very early in the, in the life of its operation in Myanmar, and all these people are there communicating with each other. The government and most of civil society didn't know what this meant, and, but there were people who were very skilled out there in, in radical extreme fringes, and we have them in Australia, the same sorts of people. They manipulated public opinion. A lot of them, or some, some of the most significant of these, are associated with Buddhist extremism, as we have here with Christian extremism or other forms of religious extremism, and it suits those groups to build the idea that there is a religious base uh, on which, which is threatened in the country. And so they have manipulated the public into believing, and there are plenty of people who are susceptible to that kind of persuasion, that there is this threat from Islam. There is no such threat, and uh, wise people in the country know that very well. But they don't know how to use social media effectively to stop this from happening. In fact, nobody has a very clear idea about it. We in the Australian Myanmar Institute are going to have a, a, an event probably at the end of May where we're going to try and examine this and try and understand what what happened and what can be done about it. Okay, thank you for that. Maybe we can just sort of move on to Aung San Suu Kyi. She's a Nobel laureate and termed the, the current civilian leader of Myanmar. You must have been there around the time she was put under house arrest. Is that, is that correct? That's right. In fact, I met her at her mother's bedside. She came back from England to see her mother, who was then mortally ill in hospital, and we met at the hospital. And we have known each other ever since then, since I guess it must have been April 88. I had to go and check on the date. Okay, um, so, so she's been criticised uh, for a lack of support for the Rohingya in the international community. I think there's a famous quote of hers that I'm, I'm just paraphrasing here, but it's along the lines of, please uh, use your liberty to help us uh, achieve ours. And some people say have been criticising her for, in particular, for her silence on the, the current Rohingya issue. So w what do you have to say about that? Well, I'd have to ask where some of these people and I know there's very respectable people, including other Nobel laureates, who've criticised her for this, for not taking a more outright stand. I would have to say that if I were in her position, uh, I would be trying to judge what I could most usefully do to correct the situation that the country's in. And I'd be looking at it, if I were her, uh, from my position as the country's civilian leader, elected to this through a democratic process that nobody has challenged. It was a fully free and fair election that saw her party get to this point. She knows very well what's to happen because of social media and the other things I just mentioned. She knows that the next election is due in 2020 and people are talking about this election as a thing which will happen, which is not what we normally think of when we contemplate countries which have been for 60 years under military rule. There's always a big question mark, will democracy survive? I think that everybody agrees at the moment that it will survive. But one of the things that might, she would say, lead it not to survive would be if she were to intervene on an issue which the public are very steamed up about because of social media and because of ignorance, if she were to move against that public opinion in a democratically functioning country with pretty good freedom of, the, of expression through things, again, like social media, she provides an excuse for the army to take over again. And her point might be, if I were to do that in order to try to protect the so-called Rohingya, and I use the word so-called again because she wouldn't use the term, then 
then I will lose my job, they will gain nothing, and the country will go backwards. Where's the greater good? Yeah, fair enough. So some have criticised her specifically saying that she's blocking a UN fact-finding mission into the country. I have a feeling you have, have a different opinion on, on whether or not those facts are true. Could you, could you let me know if that, if that is in fact true? And, and then secondly, if you think it would be beneficial for a UN fact-finding mission. The, the government's attitude to the United Nations Human Rights Council is when, quite a negative one. She thinks, she's, that she thinks, and so did her predecessors in the military government, that the country's treated very unfairly by the way the Human Rights Council functions. And I think that's not right. I, I don't think that the, the people on either side have done a good enough job of explaining to each other how they can best work. But it's not helped from the point of view of, a, of, a, of an oversensitive government like hers when the Human Rights Council's people, including its president, accuse the country of genocide, ethnic cleansing and things that they reject and then say... We accuse you, if, if they say, we accuse you of genocide, we want to send a fact-finding mission there to establish that this is true, the answer is no. What they've been more willing to do is to move the discussion away from Geneva, where the Human Rights Council is, to New York, where they can talk to the political leadership of the United Nations, and just recently they said they would welcome a visit. They didn't say what kind of visit, but it would be some form of inspection visit by the United Nations Security Council. Now, there are problems there that I don't think they've properly analysed because the Security Council becomes involved if a thing is a threat to international peace and security, and, and to raise the Rohingya to that level is not something that I would recommend. I, I would be happier if I were them trying to contain the discussion in the Human Rights Council. But that hasn't happened. Okay, so where do you see this crisis ending then? I, I see it ending where it, uh, by, by moving on from where it was after the, the great exodus began in late August 2017. That began immediately after the issue of the report done by the Commission of Inquiry that Aung San Suu Kyi set up, chaired by Kofi Annan, the former Secretary-General of the United Nations, and including a, a, a former Dutch minister, a former Lebanese minister and six very respected uh, Burmese notables, some of whom uh, I think have done a very fine job. They made a report, which was, uh, they did an interim report which indicated where they would be going, and it was about the fact that there is a disastrous humanitarian catastrophe in the country, it needs to be overcome, and these are the steps that need to be taken. And they include the return of people from Bangladesh, and there were a number who had already gone by then. And you can extend that to the people who, who went after the report was issued. We knew when the report was going to be issued. It was public knowledge. Three hours later, the so-called, and I use that word properly now, uh, Arakanese Rohingya Salvation Army launched attacks, which they're proud of, on about 20 police stations across the north of the Rakhine State. These were... It's a bit miraculous to think that a small group that hardly anybody had ever heard of before could launch coordinated attacks on 20 police stations. But what that drew, and I suspect that it was probably intended to draw, was massive overreaction from the army. And that's where the current situation began. Nevertheless, Aung San Suu Kyi said they would continue their work, they would implement the Kofi Annan report, and they appointed a ministerial committee to supervise the implementation. The head of that committee is the Minister for Social Welfare and Resettlement, U Winmyat A. He, right now, is in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh, looking at the situation and trying to talk to people there about their return. The government is working on a program which is designed to give these people confidence in their ability to return. It's doing that in conjunction with people in the private sector, as well as using the army and whoever else there might be. 
And I think that's the only route that can be followed. And what I'd like to see a country like Australia do, and I think Australia has been not bad on this, is to get itself more involved in the Rakhine end of the movement. Not, of course there's a need to feed people and give them medicines and nutrition in the camps, but the confidence that they will have in returning is only going to come if they see that the evidence is there on the ground in the northern Rakhine state that they can return safely to their land, their homes, their schools, their clinics, and, the, and their livelihoods. And that's what's missing at the moment. But that's what has to be built. Okay. And I just, I just wanted to, to touch just, just quickly. There's been a lot of claims that their homes have been burnt down. Is that what you were talking about with the military overreaction? Or is there any evidence that it was the military that did that? I think there's plenty of evidence that the military did it. Uh, but there's also uh, the, the military counterclaim that a lot of it was done by the, this ASA, this uh, Salvation Army itself, in order to terrorize people into fleeing. And so I think that although I'd be quite willing to accept that the military is responsible for most of what's happened, I'm sure it's not all of it and uh, it's a glass half full or the jury's out I don't know what the answer is and I'm not sure that it will ever be found I should add to that though that there is another issue within all this that people don't talk about and which has I don't think been reported anywhere near adequately in Australia by the media and that is the existence of this entity called the Arakanese Army the AA which is a an armed group composed of Rakhine Buddhists, people who have never accepted uh, the overthrow, which I mentioned at the very beginning of this talk, of the Arakanese kingdoms by the Bama kingdoms in 1784. They still have the ambition of re-establishing an independent Arakanese kingdom, and they're up there in the hills with guns, and they also attack the Rohingya. These two two militias that you've just spoken about, the Arakanese and the Rohingya, what's the what are the steps to to demilitarise them once once the plan's implemented? I think that the that both groups have. This is a, this is very much a speculation. I haven't seen this written down anywhere. I, I know that the ASA have been seeking funds outside the country. Now, whether they've got them and how they got them there, I don't know. And what they did with them when they arrived, I wouldn't know either. But a lot of the weaponry that the ASA have is weaponry they've seized in their attacks on police stations. Uh, I suspect that the Arakanese army is pretty similar. I think it's, a, it's, it's an indigenous trade, put it that way. And so it, it, in order to try to um, demilitarize the situation and bring people into some form of... Uh, political relationship with each other in the future, the things that will have to be done include one of the things that's in the Anand plan, which is to equip the Rohingya with the ability to get identity cards and from that citizenship, and with, in the case of the Arakanese army, to make proposals about the future makeup of Myanmar as a federal country, which satisfies them in terms of uh, their understanding of autonomy. The danger, many people would say, in accepting the greater autonomy track is it will make it easier for the Arakanese to come down really hard on the Rohingya. And if you think life's been tough for them now, it would get worse if you had full-blooded local authority with a democratic base. Okay, I can imagine. Um, so you, you did already touch on what, what Australia should be doing, what we can do to help. But on an individual level, what can, what can listeners do to help either support Rohingya or, or just peace in general in Myanmar? AMI had an event at the end of last month uh, in which we had a presentation. Sorry, do you want to just, uh, just say what AMI is for, for the listeners? Uh, yeah, I, I mentioned it a while ago, but it's the Australian Myanmar Institute. And we have an event each month about something topical in the country. And uh, at the end of last month, we had one on this Rohingya crisis. And one of the speakers was the operations boss for Save the Children. They have a big program in Cox's Bazaar with the, in the camps, and I think it works well. CARE, Oxfam, they all have 
big operations there, and the Red Cross. The Red Cross, and you mentioned at the beginning when you introduced me that I had a relationship with the Red Cross and I do things with them, they have the advantage of being able to work on both sides of the border. That's something which I think we need to be able to give more support to. And the, the government, the Australian government, to do it credit, is providing support to these NGOs, but I would concentrate Australia's support on the NGOs, especially those that are using Australian expertise, and help that forward. Thank you very much for that, Professor Lamb. It's an absolute pleasure having you on. And yeah, I can't wait to talk next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed that, please like and share us with your friends. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter at Dyson House. That's D-Y-A-S-O-N House. Be sure to tune into the next episode of the Dyson House podcast. We talked to Dennis Dragovich about his time working as a foreign aid worker in South Sudan, East Timor and Iraq and his new book titled No Dancing, No Dancing, Inside the Humanitarian Crisis. Thanks again.